Welcome to an episode of the Afikta podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today on this series, we have John Esposito, who is Distinguished University Professor of Middle Eastern and Religious Studies and Scholar of Islamic Studies, who serves as a Professor of Religion, International Affairs, and Islamic Studies at Georgetown University. John has written numerous books about Islam and Muslim politics over the course of his career. It's an honor, John, to have you on the series. Welcome to Afikta. Thanks very much. Delighted to be here. You know... I don't think there are a lot of people who have the name John Esposito or have this sort of like Italian-American name who study Islam. So maybe that's just a good place to start. Um, How did you get interested in studying studying Islam? Well, it was, you know, my my, uh, life path is uh, kind of mixed and a little crooked. I uh, wanted from probably the third grade to the age of 25, to uh, to be a priest. And particularly, I, uh, for a number of years, was a member of the Capuchin Franciscans. When I went to graduate school, I intended to do uh, a PhD in Catholic studies. Um, but the first requirement was to study world religions. Everybody had to study world religions. I then decided that uh, I'd move and study Hinduism as my major and minor in Buddhism. And I went to the chair to get permission. The chair uh, liked the idea, but said, uh, we've just hired um, a Muslim scholar uh, and it would be really good if you took a course with him. I was resistant several times, uh, given my background and, and where I came from. I was born and raised in Brooklyn. Uh, but you know, when I saw a movie called The Exodus, um, I thought that that was a, a history of Palestine and Israel in a way. And so I, I couldn't imagine why I would be doing this study. He, he pressed me several times and I realized that he was the boss. And I went to Ismail al-Burupi, a Palestinian. And um, I didn't intend to major in Islam. I just said, I'll do one course. Uh, and he kept pressing me uh, and then had me make a list of courses and then uh, invited me in to apply to Penn to study Arabic. And I said, why would I study Arabic? He said, to do a degree in Islamic studies. And I said, but I'm not doing a degree in Islamic studies. At the end of the day, it was a transforming experience because unlike most people who were trained in those days, number one, there was no great interest in Islam, professionally, uh, media-wise, uh, et cetera. And people who did do work in Islam, they did it in Islamic history and history departments. And uh, the, the change meant that uh, to actually have an opportunity to not just study with a Muslim, but in fact, the vast majority of the students were from the Muslim world because Faruqi got scholarships for them. Mm-hmm. So I had an experience of Islam that was almost, uh, you know, on site, as it were. And I just became, it blew my mind uh, that, in fact, I, I don't think I articulated it completely. In those days, Islam was put with Judy, with Buddhism, Hinduism, and all the other religions. And then on the other side, you had Judaism and Christianity. And for me, I saw a Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition with all of its history, all of its accomplishments, etc. And uh, I never looked back. When I finished, I discovered there were no jobs. That was uh, in the early 1970s. Yeah. It wasn't until the Iranian Revolution uh, that, in fact, uh, I had a career and that organizations like the Middle East Studies Association, American Academy of Religion, and even it was into the early 1980s before the State Department 
started to train its people to understand the religion and culture as well as the politics. Can I ask you a question? Although you have the energy of a 25-year-old, it seems, um, you've been around for a while. You've been working in this field for a while. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember growing up in an America that was Islamophobic, or was there just a deep absence of understanding? It was Islam and Muslims were invisible. Uh, you know, I was raised in New York City, in Brooklyn, admittedly an Italian neighborhood, but we knew the neighborhoods, etc. Uh, at that time, there were very few, A, there were very few mosques in America, and people who were Muslim were identified by the nation that they came from. You know, just as Arab Christians might be called Lebanese or Syrian. So, if, you know, Muslims would be seen in terms of the country that they came from. Uh, the religion factor really only came to play any kind of role uh, with the Iranian revolution. Do you think that's when, that's when, uh, you know, um, implicit and explicit Islamophobia sort of started to take shape? Yes, I, I think in the sense that um, if you think about this, if, if you've had no experience of another person or culture, and then you experience one person from that culture, the chances can be if they're very different that, you know, or whatever, they seem different than you are, that you'll generalize from that. That must be the way, you know, they all are. And, and for many people in the West, their encounter with, as it were, Islam and Muslims was the Iranian revolution and seeing on their television every day, people shouting death to America. And I think that's what kicked it off. There's no, I often put this, if understood correctly, I owe my career and my first Lexus to the Iranian revolution. I mean, that basically was what, what happened. Yeah, it's interesting. So you don't think that, I, I don't know this. I'm, I'm like actually authentically curious that, the implicit sort of Islamophobia that was baked into the Crusades and, and all that stuff, the way Europe viewed the Muslim world, was that imported into American, the American imagination, you think? And the American sort of, of politics? I, I think some of it was, but I don't think the connection was made. That is, people may have uh, kids may have, uh, in maybe a world history course, read about the Crusades, and that was way back when, you know? And, and my point is that, you know, for most people, they didn't bring that, that kind of history with them. And, and we weren't thinking about the fact that that was this, that we, we use the term called Islamophobia. You see, just as now with Palestine and Israel, for the first time, we begin to talk about it as part of the globalization of Islamophobia. And, you know, and we bring in that, that you know, that, that, that factor. So I, I think it really, you know, media coverage then began. Uh, but before that, there, were, there was just no, no interest. Uh, you could get in touch with, for example, I wrote to book publishers. They'd all say they wouldn't answer. And then three would answer and say, great idea, no market. Okay. The Iranian revolution came in five weeks. I signed three book contracts. Wow. Yeah. So it's... And what do you think? I mean, that's maybe this is um, a, a question more for a marketer. But book contracts come because they think that they can sell books, and people are curious to know. What do you think the nature of that curiosity was then versus now, in a very oh, I think post nine eleven 
um, yeah. war on terror world? I, I think that both post-Iran and then reinforced uh, by 9-11, um, that's what feeds media and, and in, in many ways the public. And especially if you think back before, let alone now, but before we really had social media. Okay, so then you were talking about TV and newspapers. Okay, and the line was always, if it bleeds, it leads. I, I remember running a conference at Georgetown after the Iranian Revolution, and I had uh, members of top newspapers like the Washington Post, and one was a, a, the major, a major editor of a major magazine. And a Muslim got up and said, why do you just portray, you know, this small number of violent acts, et cetera? You know, you know how, how can this be changed? And, and the person was very honest. Uh, he just said, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I'm really sorry, but as we have a phrase in media, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, a crisis occurs. That's when a town gets, you know, gets covered or a country gets covered. Yeah. You know, John, you've established yourself as, as an expert on Islam and Muslim politics. I wonder your, the reception, the nature of how your work is received, both in the Muslim world and as well in, in the U.S. Um, I think, yeah, I think go it's ahead. very, yeah, I think it's very, you know, that my work's been received, uh, um, in a variety of ways. So for example, when I first went out and started to lecture in, in a place like Malaysia, I hadn't even finished my degree, but my mentor had contacts and arranged for it. Almost nobody showed up and then people would show up and then the audience got bigger every day. It was only supposed to be a one day event. Why? Because at every event, when I finished, somebody would say, I don't understand. A, why did you a Christian, or in that sense, or at least he was, you know, referring to me as a non-Muslim, why would you study Islam? And then the next person would say, I don't understand how you can explain Islam in a way that it's clear that you understand it, and why haven't you become a Muslim? So I mean, these are the kinds of very basic questions, okay? At the same time, I can tell you that when I taught at the College of the Holy Cross, which was a first-rate, and still is, liberal arts academic but its, its symbol is the crusader, okay? Uh, and I remember when I first went there, I wasn't aware of any of this. I held a program and there was a giant carpet that had a scene from the crusades. And around the table, like a large table, you'd have a, a tablecloth with little crusaders sort of pictures, okay? And I remember mentioning to a dean at that time, after a few years, you know, this is very problematic, et cetera, you know, and I tried to explain it. And his comment, and he went to, uh, was a PhD from one of the top universities in the Boston area, was, well, they ought to get over it. You know, when I would say, this is culturally an issue, it's historically an issue, but it's certainly an issue today. This is, this is offensive, okay? Uh, that wasn't really um, the case. And I remember having two Pakistanis came to visit me who were academics and they had cameras and they went down to the admissions office and they noticed that we actually had a, a you know, the, a steel soldier, you know, the, the outfit that they wore back during the Crusades. That, that would be taken out onto the football field at times. Well, they were taking pictures with it. And I was trying to explain later to some of the administrators, that's not good news. In other words, they were thinking, oh, this is really terrific. They're taking pictures. I said, they're going to show pictures 
et cetera. And so I think that it's, you know, in a weird kind of way, it took a long time to, to realize, and it still is, there are people that deny that anything like Islamophobia exists. Now, on the other hand, you, you get people who over the years have come to uh, appreciate my scholarship. So there were a, a diverse variety and in and, and, and good times I've had lots of sales, lots of public lectures, et cetera. But there also uh, has, has been a history of uh, uh, demonization, as it were. And yeah. that's existed going, going way back when. Do you have a sense of like, you know, you have this, you have a book. Um, one of the books that you publish is What Everyone Needs to Know About Islam. Um, who is everyone in this case? Well, I'll tell you, the way it came about was that when 9-11 occurred, I decided I might do a last chapter to my book, The Islamic Threat, Myth of Reality. And the publisher said, no, I think you should do something that really you know, starts with bin Laden and then moves out. So then I, I, I wrote a book called Unholy War. But about halfway through the book, my wife said to me, I just finished an interview. And she said to me, you know, I really think you need to do a Q&A on Islam. And I said, honey, you know, I'm doing this book. And I had teaching and writing, although I've been somewhat prolific, are, have often been painful experiences. You know, I, I don't do it and feel joyful throughout the whole process. Sure. And I said, I said, this doesn't, you know, make sense. And but the more I thought about it, she said, you just got an off an interview. Every time you get off an interview, you know, and this went on post, you know, before 9-11, you know, you complain that the way the question's going, it's clear that people don't know a background. And so then I proposed doing that book and I actually finished that one ahead of the Bin Laden book because I, my audience was everyone. I mean, in the, in the, Everyone's look, let's start by saying everyone in terms of um, the non-Muslim world, you know, politically, but also I'd be really frank about it and say there are things in there that I think many Muslims can, you know, depending on how literate they are in, in their own tradition and, and read. So, and I wanted to get at what, what were, from my point of view, the basic like beliefs, but also attitudes and, and behaviors, you know, and work that through. So. Let's compare for, let's compare the last 20 years. I mean, we're living in a context 2023, 22 years after 9-11, um, where there's like basically a genocide taking place in, mm. in Gaza. There is enormous amounts of dehumanizing Islamophobic rhetoric coming out from both the US and Europe, as well as in Israel. There's no shortage of that type of language. If you compare the rhetoric then, in 2001, compare it to now, and how it lands to a general audience, um, is there a difference? Well, I remember when 9-11 occurred, we had an academic council, and they were uh, sort of distinguished scholars and whatnot from outside. And one of them is a very prominent a Palestinian professor who taught at Harvard. And uh, he said at our annual meeting, he said, you know, um, so we had started in 1993, okay? So this is a number of years, a decade later. He said, you know, you've had a great decade, you know, that, you know, he said, just want to like compliment you in the center on all the work that you're doing, but this is going to put us back 20 years. And I remember thinking probably to myself, that's the way older people think. 
not that I was that young at the time, you know, I said, I thought to myself, and I may even said it's maybe 10 years, okay? Now, I was asked the same question a year ago, a year or two ago, at a closed seminar in a, in a somewhat sensitive situation. And I said, only God knows. I said, I have, I said, given, given the past to predict, you know, the story I tell here, if we relate it to Palestine and Israel, and, and this is quite literally true. I've only started to say it a lot in recent years. When I finished my degree, I was probably in my mid thirties, which was a little late for some people because of my earlier life in a monastery. Uh, but I remember thinking to myself, cause I was concerned about Palestine and Israel, my, 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 my mentor had to, had to, he was part of the, the Nakba. He, he you know, had to flee. Um, I remember thinking, what must it be like for specialists in Middle East studies, especially since the whole role of religion wasn't taken seriously, the whole role, you know, et cetera. I said, when it comes to Palestine and Israel, they must be very much like scientists who spend their whole life working to to, to cure a disease and get to retirement and there's no cure, you know? I mean, another fair, I knew surely in my lifetime that wouldn't be the case. And of course, in the early 1990s, I thought this could be it, you know, think there's some movement here, et cetera. You know, now I face a situation which is, you know, beyond belief. Um, and um, I used an example Hopefully your audience is not good with their math because then they'll be able to figure my age out. But I spoke at a, a, a group that I had launched the group 20 years before, you know, as a speaker. And then I spoke a while ago and I got to Palestine and Israel and you know, we're talking. And I said, so how do I handle this? And I told a very sto story that I just told you. I said, but I can't face that reality. And so I would ask you, 20 years from now on your 40th that you invite me back. And although I'll probably be 103, I hope that we will have seen the resolution, the solution. It seems, except for right now, which could be make a big change. It, it, you just can't believe how intractable if you follow it every year, I mean, let alone if you're a Palestinian living through this, you know, as some people have tried to say, you know, that in many ways, Biden and crew don't realize what, 75 years of, of life and no life for many people compared to the life they had before, you know, uh, um, and maybe this will do it. I mean, it's, 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 uh, and, and maybe that's part of, of what Hamas, you know, however much I, I do not agree with, you know, violation of human life, et cetera, but that may have been in their mind, you know, doing something that would be so, as it were, explosive or whatever, that would, would almost yield at least this kind of, uh, which becoming more an international, certainly, concern and, and debate. Can I ask you about um, more of a religious and political question about Islam? What do you think sure. people most misunderstand about what Islam says about politics? I think that uh, what, what most people don't really fully realize, uh, um, and I would say this could be true for people who are also Muslims, is that as with all religious traditions, uh, there are uh, 
there, there, if you look at history, series of, of multiple ways in which Muslims had, in fact, interpreted the relationship of religion to politics. Um, and, and that could vary according not only to the religious thinker, but vary between the religious thinker and the political leader. You know, much as Constantine made Christianity into an imperial religion, before that, Christianity was a personal past without, a, you know, a strong political side. Now, the Muslim side is much different in terms of the politics going back, you know, to the time of the prophet, you know, et cetera. But I think that, uh, you know, what, what, what people don't realize is that at the end of the day, when you're talking about religion and politics, it's a mix. And when you're talking about that, it's not only a matter of faith and belief, but those who are interpreting the faith and belief. Mm. Can you give me an example of, uh, like some of those actual changes or different in interpretations like the, well, I, I think to, for example, if, if you look at the, if, if you look at Muslim writing on, um, religious pluralism, uh, and, and, and dealing with issues, not only of people of the book, but people beyond the book, as it were, you, you find a broad spectrum of Muslim opinions. If you look at Muslim opinions on um, the uh, the use of violence, and this would be true for Christianity too. You know, uh, uh, you know, on the one hand, Christianity, at, at least for most Christians, you know, see Jesus as a, you know, a non, as it were, you know, uh, a militant personality, or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. On the other hand, it becomes a religion of of empire, in which often both uh, both uh, uh, rulers and popes or bishops wind up legitimating it. And, and I think that that's the way one has to look at, uh, at Mus uh, Islam. That is, you can have a group of Muslims like ISIS who will say that, and, 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 and many will believe that they are somehow following, you know, the true teachings of Islam. And of course, you'll have plenty of Muslims who will look at that and say, no, this is a distortion. You know, uh, so I think that that's, you know, it's like talking about even my analogy is always lit. They've been living like that for about 50 years. Okay. But it's like talking about democracy. You know, when you, when you talk to people in different countries and they all say they're in a democracy, there are times when you look at what they can and cannot do and realize that there are different interpretations about that, you know? Sure. Uh, and I think that, that, that's, you know, that, that's part of the, uh, I, I thought of one example. Yeah from the past, which may or may not be used to, to get a sense of just how invisible religion was. At one point I was invited along with three other people to brief, um, by, by the secretary of state at that time, Muskie, uh, to, uh, to brief the state department and the national security council. And this is during the hostage taking. And you know, what emerged there was that you had professionals who were not only, I mean, trained uh, at universities and government, they could have been people who were in, in terms of some of what I'm going to talk about, in the Middle East Studies Association itself. But when it came to really understanding certain aspects of Islam, so for example, when the parliament said that uh, if America repented, it might uh, release you know, some hostages, okay? We happened to discuss that in this session and mentioned uh, uh, that um, that Islam was different from Christianity, okay? 
uh, well, at least some forms of Christianity, you know, where you, you, you wear, you beat your breast, you, you know, et cetera. But for Islam, following true Islam is following the straight path. When you go off that path, okay, you're off the path. Repentance is getting back on the path. And we happened to mention that in that session. And I think it was that very night when Jimmy Carter was asked about this whole question of repentance. And he, being a devout Christian, he uh, said, if they think I'm going to, in effect, get down on my knees and confess my, you know, okay, that's number one. Number two, another example that emerged when we were talking about Iran, we talked about the role of Khomeini, but also the role of somebody named Ali Shariati, who, who was very, uh, his memory and his, his teaching very strong among the youth. And at one point, uh, one of the persons who was involved and it bragged that he had served in the Middle East for many years, he said, you know, you keep talking about Ali Shariati, but you're not telling us where he is. We need to get to him. We need to mm -hmm. talk to him. We need to bring him over to our side. And I said, well, actually, you'd have to go to a cemetery. And now, quite a few years have gone by. Now, at the end of the event, uh, and it was a very sober, and it was, the people were very informed in the audience, but at the end of the event, I happened to say something like, let's also keep in mind that this is not going to be the only time where religion is going to play a role in politics. It already was in many parts of, of the Middle East, for example, but people didn't notice it. And the person who was chairing it, in effect, said, because he was tense, uh, you know, we don't have time for that kind of ivory tower, blank, blank, yeah. in terms of the word used. And I remember being upset at that and my colleague saying to me, you know, look, he's under a lot of pressure. A number of years later, I was in Cairo and somebody invited me to an, an event that the deputy chief of mission was giving. I went in and there was the same person who was now the number two in Egypt. And I said, I'm really surprised when this person asked about inviting me that you would see me. And he said, I was on the reviewing stand when Anwar Sadat was killed. So you had these dramatic, you know, and then it was, it, it actually went into the early 1980s, close to about 1984, when finally the Foreign Service Institute and a number of us were involved with it, but um, uh, an academic but who's also in government, Peter Bechtol was responsible for it. When they started to actually, in the training of diplomats who were going to places and were going to be in a place like Iran to know something about the religious tradition, to take it seriously, to know that community, et cetera. Yeah. The, the, the sort of the stickiness of Islamophobia, I feel like is, I wonder if it's unlike other other sort of dis types of discrimination i mean if if over the course of 20 years there hasn't been a degree of difference um how do you personally remain optimistic or i don't know if you would describe yourself as optimistic or how do you sort of keep on pulling in this direction of trying to educate people and trying to Inform I think, them. Um, I, I, it, it's it, it's uh, not somewhat difficult for me to answer this, but it reflects reflection that I've done. You know, at different points in your career, 
you know, you're reflecting and not only about what have I done, where do I want to go? Or, yeah. But after a while, this kind of issue, the kind of question you're asking, yeah. I think it's that um, I have a passion for what I teach, what I've seen, uh, but also for what I believe is its importance and relevance uh, and, and, uh, and what it means, therefore, to be in a situation where we know, know quite rightly and abhor anti-Semitism. Uh, but as I started writing a number of years ago, you know, that this was the new, for, the, the new social disease, as it were, Islamophobia. And, and nobody would take that seriously. Now, some people will debate about what term they want to use, but there were those who would just say and continue to that Islamophobia doesn't exist. This is really, you know, what Muslims are like. And they're educated people. I mean, you have, you know, you have people out there, a whole host, and I don't want to give them much attention, mm -hmm. but um, somebody like Daniel Pipes, who did his PhD at one of the best universities and who made his career with in a variety of ways, uh, espousing um, what I regard to be very uh, dangerous uh, positions and, and would take somebody like myself um, uh, and not just be critical over the years, but recently, a couple of months ago, actually, his outfit published two different pieces and, and the title associating me with terrorism. You know, Georgetown's John Esposito and his terrorist friends, that kind of, you know, yeah. um, but you had that. Now, a lot, a lot changed, for example, in government, but I can remember it in the early period. Uh, I, for many years, uh, because I had been a particular kind of Franciscan, had a beard, okay? And I continued to have a beard. And I also had long hair. It was the 60s. And I addressed casually like an academic. But when I started to be involved in being invited down to the State Department, I realized that what I looked like when I came in to talk about images of an Islamic fundamentalist could be an issue especially when somebody would get frustrated with something that I said mm. and, and not, not being nasty, but would say, you tell your Muslim friends, you know, you, you see, you know what I mean? It was this. Um, and uh, so I have a passion for what I do and, and I, I do, I do see change. I, I, I wind up meeting wonderful people in different parts of the world and they motivate me to do different things. And so there's meaning there, but, but, you know, is it depressing that I use that word very literally um, uh, to function in, in, in that, that kind of world? I mean, you know, it's always been an issue, as, as you know now, and many who might be looking at this at some point. Now we're talking about the fact for anybody, let alone if you're a professional like me, all the emails that I have to read and, and, and messages and news reports and follow in, you know, following up, that gets depressing. It's not only that it's a lot of work, but, but because so much of it can be outrageous, can be so negative, you know? Uh, the only thing is that, that I, I do tend to, and I say it cautiously, uh, that, that if Netanyahu remains on the kind of path that he and the kinds of people that are in his government want, they will, and they're doing it now, but they, they, will, they will really force many to really wake up and realize that, that there should be Palestine peace, but the peace has to be not only in Israel, but in Palestine. And, and I think that there is enough, this is, this is far more of a global issue than it's ever been in terms of the players, you know, and, and what they feel that they honestly have to say, and maybe what 
sometimes they're not that honest, but that, that they have to really address. Going back to this idea of like being a perceived apologist for like you and your Muslim friends, so to you know, quote unquote. Um, is the nature, do you feel like the nature of that, um, that allegation and that um, attack is just because you don't think Muslims are violent, violent? I think it's because, uh, I think it's because of a number of things. I think, I think one, uh, it's because, um, for just dumb luck, um, my career really took off, you know, I mean, really in a very big way, I went from zero, zero invisibility. Uh, you know, I, I got my PhD from a university that was new and a department of religion that was brand new. So to then make it in the profession, I became very visible with, with my with my work being translated in different languages. I did a lot of media. And so for others, that becomes an issue, you know, as it were, a variety of others. Uh, and those, and it could be a variety. That is, for some, it could be for religio-political reasons. For others, it's just that their understanding, for example, of their form of Christianity or their form of, of Judaism or Lutheranism or whatever, if they're, you know, super conservatives and, and then depending how they frame that theologically, um, it, it's a natural issue. And and the easy way to go after someone like me uh, is to, uh, in fact, one of the rumors that's existed out there for 20, 30 years is that um, I'm going to come out of the closet one of these days. You know, it, it's, and I've had situations where a luncheon at Oxford after it, one of the people who was at lunch, a faculty member, you know, who didn't want to say, and I guess the table, he thought he didn't realize this had been out there for 10 years. He said, you know, there's a rumor coming out of Canada about you. And he mentioned another person, uh, Anne-Marie Schimmel. And I said, I already know what the rumor is. He looked at me shocked. <laughs> I told him, you know, or I remember checking into a hotel in, um, in Riyadh and a young Saudi came running up to me and saying, mashallah, mashallah, you know, and I knew what he was going to congratulate me about. And, and, you know, it was almost like, you know, I hated, quote unquote, I hate to disappoint him knowing where this was going. Yeah. Uh, you know, on the other hand, a Saudi media person on the same visit said to me, uh, well, you know, we all know why, um, you know, uh, you, you wouldn't do this. It would also really affect your career, you know, and your visibility. And I pointed out to him that there was a very famous French Marxist that had converted to Islam and was invited throughout the Arab and Muslim world. So, you know, in other words, getting out of the idea that there was something behind this. Hmm. But in the early days, when I had a beard, I remember uh, uh, being interviewed by a media person. I can remember at lunch and he said to me, so who's sponsoring you? He said, clearly it's the CIA. And I said, why? He said, your beard, the way it's been done, they showed you how to do your beard so that you look like Paka Muslim. No, and I was, I was <laughs> I thought, are you, are you going to write that? Fortunately, I don't think he put it in his piece. Interesting. So you just have to deal with that. It, it is the frustration. It doesn't go away. But, but part of the reason it doesn't go away is that it is a reality, A. And B, it, another part of the proof that doesn't go away is that we started Bridge as a separate 
program eight years ago and the amount of reaction that you then get from certain people when in fact the, the work that we do documenting what's going on you know globally every day uh that work gets quoted in major media and so quote people on the other side need to find some way to take you down i want to ask you about how your views have changed over time, um, in particular about um, political uh, political Islam and the politics of the Muslim world. Um, so, if I were yeah. to speak, if I were to have been speaking to you thirty years ago, um, what understanding about the political world, um, the politics in the Muslim world, would you have been? maybe not wrong, maybe wrong is the wrong, isn't the right word I'm looking for, but in what ways has your understanding changed over the last 30 years? Um, yeah. And you've sort of evolved or, or completely shifted altogether. Where, where I had a leg up um, and, and, and therefore it influenced the way I saw things was, as I said, that uh, throughout my study of Islam at Temple, I was interacting with Muslims from, from Egypt to, uh, to Malaysia, you know? Um, and there were just ways in which you, you got, in other words, I was dealing with, I, I was, as it were, among the believers, because in those times there weren't mosques. You know, I, I'd never known a Muslim in my life. So, uh, and I think that helped me to understand, uh, get a sense of, the, of a lot of things, of the power of belief and the way that belief was understood, the power of prayer. You know, and what that prayer five times a day meant, et cetera, in terms of framing one's life, if one chooses, you know, to be an observant Muslim. Um, but I also uh, got a sense of where, where, where one could talk about the diversity, you know, and clearly you could see that diversity, for example, if you uh, were contrasting uh, back then uh, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Indonesia, you know, you, you could see, therefore, the, the cultural expressions of Islam. Uh, where I got things wrong, uh, and fortunately, uh, in the old days, they uh, when they, you did TV, they never preserved anything. So this is the first time that I will say how I got things wrong. Uh, I expected a lot more from the Iranian Revolution. In other words, the overthrow of the Shah, I totally understood that and, and, and supported it. Uh, and when I looked at the d diversity of the reformists, but the fact that at the end of the day, that, that didn't, that didn't really stick, you know, so that, for example, even when you got somebody like Khatami and, and we did the first uh, MOU with the Khatami government and did programs, uh, he's, you know, historically the exception. In other words, the, the extent to which a, a, a group of, 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 of hardliners was able to uh, capture and hold on to power. Um, uh, that struck me. Now, I should have been just a little aware of it because I had two people I was very close to who had met with, uh, uh, with Khomeini and, and who supported the revolution uh, and supported, as it were, his leadership, but who said to me that they were worried about how things might ultimately play out. And we saw that, you know, pretty early when a number of the people that he had in his government 
who were, um, you know, people like, you know, who, who were technocrats or, or who were people like Mani Sadra and Barzagan, et cetera, when you saw how short they were in government. But, but, but initially you had a reason to feel that it would shake out, you know, uh, and that, that you, you wouldn't have uh, developing what, you know, what developed. Um, and, and I can tell you, you know, the concern was among academics about, and all of us, you know, were concerned about going into an Iran in that early period after the revolution. Uh, in fact, I had been invited there and uh, didn't hear anything. And I was in San Francisco and it was two days before we were supposed to leave. And I got a phone call saying that uh, my visa had finally been approved, but the, the Iranians, it, an invitation. And they were asking me, why did a lot of the people they invite accept? And I say, because you, you told them you were giving them and sending them a one-way ticket, which was true. <laughs> the, the guy couldn't understand that. And explained and said, no, that's just because we can do it cheaper. I said, no, no, no. You have to remember, our government says to us, they have no ability to help us if anything happens, et cetera. So that was definitely something, uh, you know, that, that I think I got wrong. I think I was right in, in, in terms of the potential of, uh, of some Islamist movements uh, that, that, that then were, were, were crushed. Um, and um, I think I was pretty right with the extent to which very often uh, government Islam, uh, clean aside, let's say Iran now, just, just in other words, uh, um, when, when government gets involved, it can use religion and religious leaders to legitimate what they want, you know, uh, that that can be a problem. It can be a plus, but that often it can be used by authoritarian governments to work in their favor, if you will. Do you feel like there is a march toward secularism across the, um, the Muslim world? I mean, politically, political secularism? Uh, I... I really don't know. I don't, um, yeah, I was associated with Gallup for quite a few years, but, um, I, I, I saw a study just, oh, maybe it was a study that would be about five years old, maybe five to six years old. And it was, it was done in the Middle East by a think tank. Uh, I can't remember right now the name of it. And they found that a significant number of people, uh, wanted democracy. But a significant number of people also saw their religion as continuing to be an important part of, if you will, an expectation uh, in the identity within the country. It, that, of course, varied, but where that is now and, and, and you know, how that will go, part, part of the, the difficulty there is that certainly, I believe, uh, in, in, in many authoritarian governments where uh, where uh, religion is either used, and more recently, actually, it, the opposite has happened. A number of the governments have basically become uh, basically Islamophobic, as it were. Uh, that is, that they're afraid of any religion in politics or in social life. Uh, and so often, uh, with, they don't just ban, uh, let's say, or want to suppress uh, political Islamic political groups as terrorists or potential terrorists, even social movements religious social movements that can actually be more effective, you know, as has happened in Egypt in the past, et cetera, in providing medical care, 
education, et cetera. Okay. This is the last question I'll ask you. Um, you mentioned um, Indonesia earlier. And so I'm curious, as somebody who sort of looked big picture, right? Africa is primarily as an organization focused on the Arab world. So I'm curious, what do you think that um, folks in the Arab world misunderstand about uh, Muslims outside of the Arab world in Africa, other parts of uh, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia? Um, what do you think well, people I think misunderstand that, in the Arab world? I, I think that that which is uh, that that which is true that that uh, that Arabic and Arab history, etc., uh, and Arabs play an important part in the uh, certainly you know in the in the emergence of Islam during the period of the Prophet Muhammad, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I think that that has been for some that's been kind of a privilege that it, in fact, what's really important, the Muslim world is the Arab world. And so for the longest time, even though it's been decades where one was able to say, if you actually look globally at the number of Muslims in the world, Arab countries are, you know, very, very limited. You know, um, I, I remember um, um, a, South, a South Asian friend of mine in a conversation a number of years ago, and this may sound a little controversial, but it's, I think it just shows a certain picture. Uh, he was in a conversation with somebody who uh, came from Saudi Arabia, and but they were like uh, arguing about something. They knew each other, but they were really different. And at a certain point, he felt that the person was seeing everything through Arab eyes, you know, uh, and seeing history. And then, and then other Muslims were like to be the objects of of of, of missionary work, if you will. And this person said, "You don't understand." Um, you know, we talk about the fact that, you know, the miracle of Islam is the Quran. Yes, that's true. But the other miracle is that God revealed Islam to the Arabs and it still survived. And that sort of caught the person. I, I think there was that that focus. Uh, when, when one did a, a good deal of Middle East studies, I mean, you know, the area was Middle East, South Southeast Asia, uh, and, and Islam in Southeast Asia, South, uh, South and Southeast Asia, was really considered very peripheral. You know, I only by accident wound up getting into South and Southeast Asia because uh, as I was doing finishing my dissertation and talking about women in Egypt, I was invited to go to Pakistan. And therefore, I then did the study of that in Pakistan. And then that led to my being involved a lot in Malaysia, you know, uh, et cetera. But uh, there's been that kind of Arab focus in the popular mind as well as among many Muslims, you know, that, that this is orthodoxy. Yeah. Okay. We're going to wrap up with a quick Q and a, um, just a couple questions. The first one is what are you reading or watching these days? Uh, all I'm doing is reading and watching, uh, what's happening, um, on, in media, international media, and then covering it to a variety of sources, whether it's, uh, the guardian, the New York times, Le Monde, uh, you know, you name it, it's made it very consuming. Um, yeah. Do you feel like these publications know what they need to know about Islam? I think it all depends on the reporter. And it's very clear that there were often there are issues. I mean, all you have to do is when you look at, you look at reporters on, on TV, you know, uh, 
uh, or in videos often. And uh, at times, uh, they just don't know what they're talking about. And, and, and that continues to be the problem. They, well, they function even more and more with the easy stereotype. I mean, think about the fact that a lot of your major Islamophobes, even in our government, okay, uh, are, are on the far right. And many of them, a fair number, uh, have gone to a Yale or a Harvard for an education or even to a, you know, to a Harvard law school. And, and yet we'll have an attitude when it comes to Islam and Muslims, or let's say Israel and Palestine, which just doesn't seem to have been rooted in any exposure or any reading. Um, and of course, the way you can see that too, at a, in a way, is when you're in uh, personal conversations with people uh, or in, in a lot of conversations where people will um, just kind of sort of say to you, if you're talking about what the reality of, of Islam or Islam in this country or what's going on, they'll say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, and, and then when you ask for their source, uh, and I've had this happen, uh, including sometimes neighbors, and then I understood where their politics were. They would be sending the stuff on the internet that attacks me, for example, or you know, or if I was, if I talked about Palestine and Israel, you know, or you know, etc. Suddenly we get this email in, and often if we answered it, my wife also would do a lot of proof checking. We'd find that we then didn't get a response back because you could send back some hard proof, but you know, on a lot of this now. Uh, what we're looking at, it's people don't want to, too many people still don't want to really see what the reality of it is. Yeah. You know, that, that, that it's heinous. Some of the stuff that went on at the beginning of, of you know, that, that, that was done, but one has to look at what have the last 75 years been like for Palestinians and, or what are the last 15 or 20 years been like for Gazans, et cetera, in terms of their life in terms of the violence they've experienced in terms of you can go right down the line how many if you did a body count and I, and I often will use that when we talk about conflicts and just compare the body counts on on each side and uh we see it now you know that it, it's only beginning to sink in because the numbers are getting so big it's really really hard when you're talking about so many so-called Pal palestinians being killed when in fact vast numbers of them are are innocent and the bombing of mosques and churches and hospitals yeah um the last question i'll leave you with is who would you love to shadow for a day past or present that's really difficult um if if it were if it were ancient then uh, i'd be back into my earlier uh interests in uh in religion and religious founders but if we're talking about contemporary, or at least recently, uh, uh, there was a great scholar named Albert Harani, uh, yeah. who uh, died relatively young compared to somebody like Bernard Lewis, whose scholarship, uh, I thought, in his early stages was quite good, and I used to use it in my courses. But around the 70s, he went another direction. So somebody like Harani uh, would really be good. I, I, I did once have a three-hour conversation with him. And it was the kind of person you felt you could talk to for, you know, forever. Uh, and then there are, uh, there, there, there are, um, in a way I, I was after nine 11, I, I was asked to brief, uh, Biden when he was the chair of foreign relations. I'd love to have the opportunity to brief him again. 
don't because think he would it was, listen. It, it was understandable back then that he didn't understand. He reflected so much because he, like most members in Congress, and it wasn't, you couldn't put it down in those days, they left the Middle East to a staffer. The important areas were Europe, which, you know, Russia, maybe, et cetera. Well, uh, you know, I just recently came back from Doha and uh, spoke in a number of venues. And one of the talks I gave was on the Biden-Blinken administration. And this was before, a week before the breakout and stuff. And all you had to do is take a look at how that administration was playing out. Both their, their autobiographies, as well as then their their politics and their political statements. And so, yeah, I'd love to be in a room to be able to talk to him about that. Because I think we are getting to a point, uh, and you may not have seen it, but you know, you're beginning to see um, statements put out there. Recently, there were statements put out by a number of uh, Muslim leaders. Uh, I'm not saying this is universal or whatever, but a statement by a number of Muslim leaders who criticized the Biden administration roundly and basically said, uh, they could not vote for, uh, you know, uh, uh, if if things didn't change dramatically, they could not vote for him, no, nor, you know, nor, you know, support his, and I think, so, yeah, it'd be interesting to, to talk with Biden about this. You know, you mentioned this um, professor, Bernard Lewis, um, who, you know, as you alluded to, died uh, at like the age, like 101, 101. Um, That's why I want to be 103. <laughs> so I could be number one, but go ahead. Yeah. Outlast him. Um, <laughs> what kind of impact does somebody like that have? You know, somebody who is sort of, um, not sort of, is an Orientalist, is, um, and was that prolific and has an entire family tree of scholars who, are from his ideology. Bernard Lewis was a brilliant scholar, okay? Um, but uh, to, um, to, um, to take a phrase from my dad when he would be talking to his three sons and uh, we'd be disagreeing with him, particularly my brother, the economist, my father at times would say, you're too bright to be that stupid. Uh, in Bernard Lewis's case, I saw his early work, and when I first began to teach in the 60s, sort of early 70s, you know, went with that. And then when I looked at his, his later work, he used his brilliance. But part of the problem, from my point of view, that came about was that an awful lot of people, including, uh, you know, uh, the Bush administration and certainly the, the vice president, you know, Cheney at the time, uh, were influenced by his, by, by Lewis's thought because he was this great scholar, but what they didn't realize was he's really a historian and very much a historian of the past. Mm -hmm. You could not really talk to him other than in generalizations. And I, I was in a session at the Council on Foreign Relations and other places where you really could say that he had been following in any deep way the, the politics of specific, you know, countries. But he had uh, a tremendous, uh, he and I were um, on stage in New York, um, at um, the the head of uh, uh, I think it was Barnes and Noble at their big store, which is almost like a library, and we were talking about our books that that had come out. I forget which of my books and his was what went wrong. My comment about his book I made 
at a talk I gave at Berkeley was, Bernard, you went wrong. And then I found out that it was live on NPR, the interview. They forgot to tell me that. So anyway, um, Lewis actually, we talked about his book, you know, what went wrong and I talked. But then he got into the whole history of uh, colonialism and, 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 and the role of, of the colonial powers. He ultimately, though, wound up basically saying, looking at the contemporary situation about Iraq in those days, when we, couldn't, we could not find weapons of mass destruction, he said he thought he would advise that the president uh, talk about democracy and use that as his legitimator. And you will remember in the second term of George W. Bush, he then gave a speech in which he acknowledged that he, like all presidents before him, Democrat or Republican, when it came to the Middle East, practiced democratic exceptionalism, right? And things were going to change. That became the excuse for going into Iraq. It became the excuse for being able to do whatever we wanted in, in the so-called war on, on global terrorism. And so Lewis's uh, influence was, was very uh, strong there. Um, and uh, I remember at a certain point, he actually said, and reflecting back on the British historically, actually, I think they really were, at the end of the day, their intention was to kind of bring democracy. Uh, and at that point, I publicly said, that simply isn't true. Um, you can uh, look at the internet or you can look at all the books in this library. I said, this is historical revisionism. So yeah. brilliant, yes. Um, you know, but uh, influential, yes. Um, very negative. And, and the irony is, as I understand it, in his very later years, he denied that he had any such influence when, in fact, the Wall Street Journal used to write pieces about the role that, that Lewis had in, in, in talking you know, with, with the vice president and, and, and others. Yeah. Super interesting. Um, John, thanks so much for making time to talk to me. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, and your, uh, your, um, perceived optimism and laid back demeanor is infectious. You somehow oh, are able to <laughs> do what should feel like um, heart-wrenching work with a, a, a sort of a pep in your step. So a heavy dose of medication also helps <laughs> a word to the wise. <laughs> All right. But uh, really, I, you know, you managed to get me to talk about stuff, a number of items that I've never talked about publicly. So it's just, it was an interesting interview. It just came out. So yeah. I enjoy it. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care.